Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. All right, folks, just a heads up, we've got a two-parter here again. I just can't stop yapping with these people. So basically, anything in the series of interviews that goes really close to two hours, I got to cut it off. I can't have a two-hour podcast because it makes it impossible for people to download properly. So anything much over an hour and 40 minutes or so is going to become two parts. And the the policy for now with two-part interviews is the following. Uh, I'll put out the first part on the normal schedule, the first Wednesday of every month. If it becomes a two-part episode, I never really know until they until I start getting all the pieces together. But if it becomes a two-part episode, the second part of the of the show will come out the week after. So it's uh, the first Wednesday, part two will be the second Wednesday, and then there'll be three weeks of nothing, and then back to the first Wednesday for the for the new episode with the new guest. So that's what's happening. Again, two-parters this week with my guest Kevin Bright. Let's get going. Kevin Bright's an incredible guitar player from Toronto, Ontario originally. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. He's from somewhere in Ontario. I can't remember right now. Anyway, he lived in Toronto for a long time, but uh, a remarkable guitar player and musician. I got to know Kevin maybe about 15 years ago. Um, there was a folk festival, the Vancouver Folk Festival, had a, um, an artistic director at that point, a guy named Doug Simpson, who was a good friend of mine, and he was a very adventurous personality. And he would always call me up and say, hey, let's do something wild and crazy this year and bring a bunch of musicians in kind of somewhat randomly and put them all together and give them like three or four days of prep time to put some some kind of show together. And then these random musicians from different parts of the world would have to do a show. And it was always really exciting. Anyway, I was on that with my group at the time. And Kevin Bright was on it, I believe, with the Sisters Euclid, which was the name of his band from Toronto at the time. And uh, I didn't know Kevin. I didn't know anything about him. Um, but he blew me away. He was a great player, of course. And uh, at that time, he, I guess, was still playing with Nora Jones, or maybe he just left her band or something. But he was uh, a guy that just, like, he got a lot of great gigs because he's a great player. There's no other way around it. You'll hear his story today. He's an incredible slide guitar player and a non-slide guitar player. He does it all. He's also quite prolific, which is super cool for any fans of what he does because there's just sort of no shortage of material. So when I first was hanging out with him, he had these two records that came out almost back to back. One was called Empty um, and the other one is called Maybell. 
And when I got my mitts on those records, I listened to them a lot and I was really into what he did on both of those records. And from there, I kind of explored his other albums as well. Empty is kind of a slide guitar national um, resophonic album. It's all instrumental, I believe. Yes, I'm pretty sure it is. And then Maybell was a man or is a mandolin orchestra album, but it's all him overdubbing all the mandolin parts. And it's really kind of symphonic and, but also crazy and, and improvised at the same time. So uh, I wanted to talk to him about those records. And then he had this great band called Folk Alarm that I don't think really plays much anymore, but I could be wrong. And then he had this crazy band with Ciro Baptista, who he was in a few groups with, and they had a band called Super Generous. And that is a wicked record. It's just called Super Generous. The band's called Super Generous. The album's called Super Generous. It's kind of hard to get a hold of on album. I'm sure, I don't know. I haven't looked on Spotify. I'm sure it's there. Um, But maybe look that one up if you can and, uh, and check out Super Generous if you want to hear his crazy, awesome guitar playing. So uh, Kevin's a super nice guy. We had a, a blast speaking about his history and his music and his influences. And lately he has put out a record called uh, Johnny Goldtooth, who he's kind of adopted an alter ego. Uh, we didn't really get into that. I'll leave that up to him to explain a little bit about. Um, but that's his latest record is um, Johnny Goldtooth. And then he has a brand new record that he'll tell you about on, on this show as well that's not out yet. That's Kevin Bright's new record, and it's going to be very cool. Wait till you hear what he has to say about that. So that's all I'm going to tell you. He's a Canadian guitar icon. Most Canadian guitarists know of Kevin Bright. He's a bit of an enigma and a bit of a legend around Canada and probably should be more in the States. I don't know. But in Canada, everyone knows Kevin Bright, and he's here today to tell you some of his story. Enjoy. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. Uh, you can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page and right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, Also, this year we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca, podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union, Tube, and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to six amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. (laughs) 
are you doing? Am I crystal clear? Uh, crystal doesn't spring to mind, but clear enough for us to yap, definitely. So I'm, you're, you're, I'm not doing that when I'm talking. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> Can you just do that the whole time, that effect? Yeah, exactly. I only do it when I have to say something important. And then I walked down the street, and guess who I saw? I saw you know, like that. <laughs> How are you, man? Great. Yeah. Great. Let me just uh, hop right in. Um, I, I love the new Johnny Goldtooth record. Maybe you could, maybe we could just start by talking a little bit about that. Um, I know it's not super new anymore, but um, it's sort of the last. Yeah. I don't know. You've probably got other things cooking by now, but um, maybe yeah. you could just tell me a little bit about that project and the the, the uh, maybe tell me a little bit about Johnny too. Sure. Uh, where do I start? Um, I made this record. Uh, the thought was I'd make a record that was uh, something different for me. And I thought, you know, I, did, I was kind of searching for something. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just came off of three mandolin orchestra records that I made. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make something that was not, not try to make something different, just something that was interesting to me uh, at the time. And uh, I was kind of empty. I didn't really have anything in my brain as to what I should do. And then, uh, I, you know, I, I was just doing some session work and, uh, I was, I was at the end of a session for, for uh, Ruth Moody, uh, Ruth, Ruth was making a record and they wanted, I don't know why, but they wanted to replace Mark Knopfler on a track. (laughs) Well, why wouldn't you? That guy's a hack. (laughs) Yeah, right. And, uh, what, and this song was totally, uh, Totally, uh, Mark Knopfler. You hear it, Sam, and, and the song sounded like it was a Mark Knopfler, not Mark Knopfler song, but definitely up his alley. And uh-huh. I guess he was in Toronto, and he came in and he recorded this beautiful guitar solo. I thought it was really beautiful, and uh, they did too. But they they just want, I guess, they just wanted to. They want something different, and I was already there playing on her record. Don't remember the name of the record, and. Uh, you know, you you know, you've done these things before. You're you you work a day doing this stuff. You're working everything. You're working your your. You know, it's not like digging a ditch, but it's it is exhausting because you're you're it working is, hard. Yeah. You're trying to you're trying to 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 you know work for the greater good, right? So you're totally you're coming up with ideas, and I'm pretty exhausted. So I they play me. Do you want to hear it, or do you want to hear his guitar solo or not? I said, yeah, let's hear it. See, and I didn't. I personally thought, well, it's perfect for what that song is. It was kind of a Celtic key tune. It's right up his alley. You can, you can imagine. Well, you've been hearing it, Steve. What it was like. It was great. You know, it was in tune and that clean sound, and sure. you know, like Sultans of uh, whatever Sultans of Swing is that it? That's, That's the but one. But it had yeah. that sound. Okay, it's him. Uh, and I, but I, yeah, do you hear something? Yeah, I do. I, I heard nothing, nothing. <laughs> so I, by the time I got to where I had to sit down with my guitars in the two different, I was a room and a half away from them, uh, in, recorded in, uh, David Trevor Smith's place. So sure. I get to the back and I, I just came up with this idea that what if, what if, what if it was just completely opposite to what it what it really wanted. Like, what if it was so opposite from what Mark Knopfler played? So I did this thing, and I just thought of this guy that, that came to my mind that you know had a gold tooth tattooed on tattoos on his face, <laughs> a badass that didn't sure. fit. 
And so I, I did a solo that wasn't a solo. It was a solely in that it was being orchestrated. I would orchestrate. I'd do like four or five guitars on top of it. But it was really a twang thing under a Celtic tune. And I thought, it's so, it's so kind of wrong that maybe it would be right. So I did it, and I, I was really excited about it. And so I went in after I finished playing it. I said, oh, give me another track. And I was, you know, it was, a, it was a last, my last kick at, uh, at uh, exhaustion, you know, the last kick for sure. hitting exhaustion, hitting that wall. So I, I did it, and I thought it was really cool. And then I explained to them what had happened. And I told them about you know, this guy, this idea of Johnny Goldtooth. I came up with the guy's name, Johnny Goldtooth. He can only do one thing. He's an ass-pinching character. You know, married five. I just imagine this cat guy, you know, heavy smoker, smokes everywhere, you know. Wow, you had it all worked out, getting the whole story. Friends, you know, that kind of character. Anyways, yeah. and I thought it was kind of good. And then uh, they loved it. And they thought it was really great. And they were really excited when they, Johnny Goldtooth, Johnny Goldtooth. So I went home, and I was really excited. Then months later, the record comes out. And I'm really I'm excited, selfishly, because I I, I knew, remember the name of the song, and I wanted to hear the Johnny Goldtooth. I thought it would be really cool. Cause I liked it, right? So here it comes, Steve. Here it comes. It's you know we got a verse, we got a chorus, we got a verse, we got a chorus, and guess what's coming up? The solo, right? The solo. <laughs> and it comes, and it's Mark Knopfler. <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 So Johnny Goldtooth's Johnny Goldtooth's debut was uh, was shit shit canned. (laughs) Johnny Johnny not only did Johnny not they leave the building he never entered the building. So uh, I thought was pretty fucking funny uh, actually. I I I laughed really and I thought maybe maybe it's not the right song. So I looked at other songs. There's no Johnny on it at all. And I was kind of bummed out after I thought it was funny, and I thought I thought that was really good. And and I don't know if I got the back end of it. And the back end of it was that Mark Knopfler they bought they brought she brought Ruth brought the tracks. This is what I was told. She brought the tracks to um, England or wherever wherever he lives, and they played it to him. And she said, "Is there any way you can play on top of this?" And he said. <laughs> Either that that goes, or I don't play on it. And so she, (laughs) so he plays. (laughs) So So that's even that's actually even weirder. So you replaced Knopfler, and then Knopfler replaced you. Yeah, wow. But he wouldn't even add. But he wouldn't add to it. Like he wouldn't. He didn't want to add to it. And I, fair enough. Totally fair enough. Because you can imagine what 
that could have sounded like because it really was. <laughs> I don't know if I can know. imagine that actually. Yeah, well, you can imagine the idea of it being Celticy, and then on top of the Celtic thing is no, 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 no. You know, it got that kind of out. Of, I, I and I, I put the guitar a little bit out of tune. I, oh, you know, the, the vibrato was kind of weird. Like I just really wanted to be that guy. So, uh-huh. so I decided that uh, you know, I that meet that immediately greenlighted. That immediately greenlighted my. Um, my desire to make a record of all songs that Johnny wrote and uh, awesome. So Ruth Moody was, was actually the inspiration for the whole thing. It really was. And it, and I <laughs> recorded it very quickly. Oh. Uh, I had nothing to be honest with you. And then when I started recording, it just kind of opened up. I could see it. You know, once I got the first mm-hmm. song done, I said, they all have to sound like this. And I got a sound I liked and I had a guitar made for Johnny. Like I thought I didn't own any guitars that I thought would be a guitar that he would play. So I had a guitar, you know, I worked on a guitar that was made that I thought would be perfect. You know, and I even when I went to Kane Tire and I got uh, mailbox <laughs> letters, you know those mailbox letters of J G yeah. and I put that nice. right on the guitar. Is that like a is that like a jazz master kind of thing? Yeah, it's called a jazz bastard, and it was it was made by <laughs> Billy Rowe, a rock and roll relic guy. And um, oh, okay, that, yeah, that's his company. And uh, the neck is uncapable. It, it's so big, really? it's big. It's big from the nut all the way. Like it doesn't taper. Like it's a very strange neck. Is that what you were looking for? No, not at all. It, it just <laughs> it happened to be on the guitar, and then I thought this. And I got really big hands anyway. Yeah, you do. But I, but it, it seemed to work really well for for this thing. It really, I liked it a lot. Like it was, it was. Did you come across it and try it, or did it, or was it sent to you like, here, try this one out, and you just loved it, or were you like in a shop where there was a bunch to try? Well, it was in a shop, Steve. That that the guitar, it was a, quite a story. The the guitar, they it was commissioned by uh, the store in Toronto called Capsule, and they yeah. commissioned Billy Rowe to make five jazz bastards, and okay. uh, they couldn't move them because they're not the prettiest things, really. <laughs> And uh, they were they were somewhat ones. I have two of them, and they're somewhat relict. Which you know, it's I don't know what that really does to the sound of guitar, and it makes you look like you've been playing longer than you really have. Or, but sure. I I didn't go on that. I the one I had I loved, and the second one, Johnny can't be playing no shiny new guitar. No, he can't. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and and I had to kind of imagine like what. Well, I say, well, that's a perfect guitar for Jerry. That looks like a guitar that he would play. And uh, the guitar, they sold the guitar, and nobody wanted it because the neck is so fucking weird. And what happened was, 
it came back to the store. Somebody bought at Valley Village for 25 bucks. What? Because, and, the, and so the guy who bought the guitar from the store at Valley Village brought it back to Capsule, knowing that he, he, this guy was a guitar player and said, I think somebody, somebody steal his guitar. And went, no, and they knew the guy who bought it. And it was a sad story. He was an alcoholic, and the, the family got rid of all his belongings. So once I heard that, I had to buy the guitar, and I didn't pay, believe me, I did not pay $25 for it, but I bought the guitar, <laughs> and then from that point on was the rebuilding of the guitar, uh, which was making it like a pickup for and putting the Bigsby on it, because that was a real Johnny thing. Okay. Uh, you know, like that was what I imagined, so I changed everything, the way it looked, you know, as a pick guard, just so it looked really, so when I looked at it, I wanted to be that guy. Mm-hmm. That's the story of that record, and it was, it, it's more, the, there's more of a backstory on that record than the actual making of the record, because the record went really, really fast. How fast? And then when Donald Trump, uh, you know, was going to build the wall, that was all happening, and I made Johnny from El Paso. Johnny came from El Paso, which, you know, Juarez and El Paso, and I thought all that beautiful music that came from Juarez. And I thought, well, I'll make the record sound. I want to make it sound like it came from that guy. Uh-huh. You know, so I thought, and I really, when that, was, when that shit was going down, that really also was a bit of inspiration for me to write right. this yeah. record. And that's it, Steve. That's a story of that record, quite a story. Is it all the Sisters Euclid guys with you, or is it a different crew? No, there's none of them on that record. Oh. Uh, they, we we tu- we we're touring it with the sisters, uh, with some of the sisters, like uh, the okay. rhythm section from the sisters, and then uh, you know uh, Perry White playing horns and then uh, Brad Kilpatrick playing vibes. So, but it was the record was was uh, people I knew like that that were really really like minded in this way of uh, uh-huh. all music that I I thought came from this this area of the world so who plays on the record uh vincent henry vincent henry is a guy I played with uh hugh laurie he's a great uh saxophone player he plays everything this guy uh-huh. uh davide dorenzo who's a friend of mine from toronto sure yeah. um uh russ boswell played bass okay he's played with you for years yeah, he's a folk alarm guy with me. And then uh, Michael Ward Bergman, who's amazing accordion player. Oh, amazing. Cool. Yeah. He, he's from New Orleans. He's a, he's a really good friend of mine, and he played accordion. And I played a lot of bass on the record. I, I'm really into bass these days. Like up, I've been studying upright bass, so I've been playing that. Oh, really? So I, yeah, so I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can you know, make it, make it make something of this kind and i and I, i'm a bass clarinet major so i so i all the bottom end was the upright bass with the uh, with the bass clarinet which is a really beautiful sounding doubled like they're really nice and because i was playing both parts it wasn't that difficult to 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 do it because i knew the I knew the parts. So I just said, oh, this would be great doubled with a bass clarinet. 
That's so, really interesting. Yeah, nice. So, so were you tracking uh, like live with guitar with no bass for some of it? No, I would. I would do. I remember this. I would do. I would track singing the melodies with an acoustic guitar. Oh, and then okay. I would immediately go in and just replace the uh, the guitar uh, yeah. with with the yeah, electric guitar with that that kind of mindset of Johnny. So all of your playing on the album is not done live with the band. None of it. Wow, interesting. It doesn't sound that way at all. No, it doesn't. And I I think I think really because um, it was done. Very, really quickly, uh-huh. and it's not that clever. Like it, it's not a clever <laughs> record, like at all. And so, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of mistakes. Like there's a lot of stuff that I, I you know, I just liked it. Like I, I like the way something like some some of the things are. Well, I guess I I can't use the word wrong, but it was you know things that you know I, I guess I could have fixed. <laughs> I could have fixed yeah, it and made well, it a little bit more, more clever, but I, I didn't. I'm glad you didn't. Yeah, me too. Like uh, I, 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 it's it's more enjoyable to listen to it when you you didn't pour too much. Well, you poured a lot into it, but not a lot into it. Like hours and hours and hours of right, right. you know, like all the solos are live, you know, and I, yeah. you know, they're just they they are all like I just do it in one take, and I say I'm like yeah, keep that. I think that's kind of neat and. Again, I got so far from being uh, perfect, you know, so right. far from being perfect. It's, and it kind of would go, I think, against the character of that guy who I thought of, which was a little bit nasty. And and then what happened was when the record was done, all, all the, this preconceived notion of who I thought this guy was was out the window because the record is so happy. And nobody, <laughs> nobody who's you know, about the idea of being married five times and uh, pinching women and smoking all the time, smoking in church, you know, like <laughs> it didn't really fit the vibe. So I had to kind of alter who he was, who I felt who he was, uh, you know? Okay. Yeah. So, but cause, cause it was like, I don't know if he could be like that. If he was, cause the record is really happy. You know, it's a, it's a wagging tail of a dog, that record. So, I, <laughs> you know, so I don't, I don't know. I find that fascinating about doubling bass and clarinet. So just back up, back up for a second and tell me about your clarinet playing. Well, I studied clarinet when I was a kid. Uh, oh, me too. And uh, I had a clarinet when I was a little guy. And uh, I went to school. Uh, when high school, I was a bass clarinet guy. I played it. And then when I left high school, the teacher just gave me the clarinet. It was a beautiful bass clarinet. So I had the clarinet and I would, you know, I would study and play over time. Like I would play for a while. I'd play for, you know, a good, good chunk of time. Then I, then I would, you know, get busy with something else. And I would, I'd always see it in the corner and I would drag it out and I would play a little bit. And, uh, yeah, it was in the last, really last, five or six years, I started playing it more and more. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't travel with, like, I don't, it's hard to play it live because you, it's hard to go from one thing like guitar and yeah. play guitar, then grab, because you're not, uh, the reed isn't wet. You don't have a reed in your right. mind. Yeah. It's one of those things that you got to be playing that thing. 
And yeah, I, yeah. you know, your mouth collapse. My mouth goes through stages of collapsing. Like this, you play so hard. You know, I'm making a new record now, and there's a lot of bass clarinet. A lot of bass. Excuse me, a lot of bass clarinet on it. So cool. I'm playing it again. So that's it's, it's been in my life for uh, quite a long time. Uh, that's I'm, wild, not man. I'm not great at it, but my but my mind is good for it. Like I, because I. Right. I kind of understand what it does and its range and where it sounds yeah. good. Yeah. And the cl- and the clarinet, the bass clarinet I have is really good on the bottom end, so I, I kind of favor it down there. And it and it's 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 a nice range because it, it kind of if you get a, if it goes if you get one that goes on to low D, it's beautiful. But usually it, it covers it covers the spectrum of the of uh, the bass, so it's beautiful. And together they they just sound. It almost sounds like an arco bass. So when you put a bass, it sounds like you're having a bass and the, you know something, you know, an arco bass playing at the same time. Uh-huh. And it and it covers up a lot of bullshit too, which is good. Like you can, <laughs> yeah, like you don't have to be perfect on it on, on, right. on either because it just goes like wow, because yeah, yeah. it, it's such a beautiful sound, right? It's it is a beautiful sound. Yeah, I didn't. I had no idea you played it. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I love it. I love it. So what you're talking about, I I think, is one of the most fascinating things about your solo records, which mm. is that, to me, I don't know all of them, but I know most of them. And oh, the thing nice. that, strikes, that strikes me about them is that they're conceptually, like, really thought out. Like you, uh, for, like, Empty, for example, is, like, kind of solo resonator heavy uh, Maybell is like full mandolin orchestra fully orchestrated these are not records like maybe you are going into them without fully knowing what you're doing but they're not records that you're going into with no strong concept but then right. in the middle of it your playing seems totally the opposite like it's totally right. like flying off the handle at times and just like completely right. untethered by premeditation uh so i'm just wondering like how you wrestle with those two like one side of you seems to be like highly organized and highly thought out and then the other side that that is like the improvising side is so like free how the Mm. hell do you do that well you it's it you have like uh parameters sorry you have certain parameters and those parameters are like you have a mandicello and it has that sound. And if you commit to, to you know, you have uh, the uh, mandolin, the mandola, and the mandolin, yeah. you think to yourself, it's, that's the sound. So it, that is a, in itself, it's a, it's a, it, depending on, on how you get around on these things, it is a parameter that you have to work in. And then after you get... Um, you know, what you want to say in your song, then you have this bit that's going to improvise. That's another part of your personality that you, you're allowed to free associate. And that, to me, is is you know a lot of the stuff I I 
did. Like if I, if I had a song, because I, I don't know if you if you feel the same way I do. Because I know you you've made a lot of records, but anything, and I, everybody's different this way. But I cannot write from production. Like I couldn't. You know, in the eighties, it was that the era where people were getting into Fairlights and PPGs and samplers mm -hmm. and they would write from that. Like, so they, in other words, they'd have, they'd have, um, they go in the studio, whether they've written anything or not, they would get a groove that was yeah. maybe generated from a computer, maybe from a drum machine. Then they get a baseline that's, you know, then they write on top of it. But I could never write from that. It just sounded like shit. Like it sounded like, <laughs> like it sounded horrible. It sounded like, I can't even, I was going to say it sounds like a car commercial, but that's, that's not fair because, because it sounded worse than that. And it just sounded, <laughs> and I think there's nothing here. And if, if I actually wrote something that I could sing to you on a guitar, that there's the production right there, yeah. then I could take that and I can arrange it. But if I actually said, well, okay, I got, I got the bass clarinet over there and I got the bass and I got all these mandolins. I'm going to just put down something fun and just improvise over. It never worked out unless yeah. I actually had, here's the chorus, here's a verse, here's a bridge. Here's some, and if I had that together, then all I was doing, which was seemed to be simple enough, was just putting the, the, the pieces of the puzzle together. But it was just that. If something's high, something should be low. If something's mm -hmm. sitting in this range, well, the mandola has a nice honk in the middle. That'll, yeah. that'll really work well. And then when all that was put together, or like or empty, like you're saying, the, uh, the national guitar, that thing sits in a place that nothing else can occupy. And so... When you, when you have the form, here's the song, here's the melody, here's the changes, then at some point you go, the guy that's singing the song, it, mm -hmm. you know, that's, it's instrumental, but you are singing a melody, you are playing a melody, sure. that can do whatever it wants to do because it's being backed up by the orchestra or by the arrangement or by the song. Like here's, it goes A minor and something is playing the nine and something is playing the third. And mm -hmm. so I'm able to go do whatever the hell I want because all that stuff has already been put in its right. place. So, so, so the idea of, of, you know, flying off the handle, as you said, or, you know, flying <laughs> by the seat of your pants, you're allowed to do that because it's, it's constructed, right? That for me was was uh, the, the the learning the, the learning I had to do on all of it was that I just couldn't just write to write. I had to I had to I mean I had to write to write, not not come up with something from a production standpoint because it just sounded really, really bad. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, I do. I do. So in a in a case like Maybell, for example, that record, which yeah. I mean. I don't know why, but that record like really spoke to me. I'm not, I'm, you know, I've never really been a mandolin player. I've never really right. listened to much mandolin music at all, really. I mean, aside from like bluegrass. Right. Um, but that 
record to me, like just as from a musical level, like really spoke to me. So tell me, and actually, and actually then like that kind of ties into your record from like three or four years ago. Um, what's that called? Uh, well, there was, it was a, is a, is Ernesto Delilah field recording. So that, that kind of has a similar vibe of like layered mandolin orchestra kind of feel. So, so tell me like when you go into those, like say with Maybell, was that something you were just working on at home and you would like construct it bit by bit or did you have it like intricately worked out? Cause that's all you, right? Yeah, it is. Um, okay. Well, it was it was an eight track recording. Needs no repeating. Just another flying crow. Cuts through the flesh and bone. Uh, okay, and it was uh, I can't remember how I recorded it, but I know I know it was eight tracks. So it was, and, and what I remember the most was that my wife was nine months pregnant, and somebody had told me that once you have kids, uh, <laughs> the first couple years of your of, the, of a child's life, uh, forget forget doing anything um, uh, creative. That you're gonna okay. be, that's what I was told. They were, they were wrong. <laughs> so you had they a deadline. Wrong, but who knew? And so yeah. I thought, I better get as much done as I can because when the baby <laughs> comes, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a storm. You know, uh-huh. it's going to be, what am I going to do? So I recorded it in my home and I didn't know uh-huh. anything about recording, nothing. And I had some songs. I had uh-huh. tunes I liked to play, and I was really heavily into uh, the mandocello. Like, really super, 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 super into mandocello. And so huh. I, I, it was coming from that. So I wrote, I wrote everything on the mandocello. But I was recording at home, and my my wife, I'm getting, I remember recording it. I'd be, I, you know, I was so into it. What it was going to sound like. I'd hear her washing the dishes. Uh-huh. I'd hear her putting the dishes, spank, 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 you know, <laughs> blank, blank, blank. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking to myself, Jesus Christ, I'm trying to make a record here. So I open the door, <laughs> I open the door, and I look, and she's in it. We're in like hot Toronto weather. Hot. It's summertime. We're in the beginning of July, and she looks at me, and her face is all red because she's, you know, she's she's so pregnant. And she looks at me with a big smile on her face, and I think to myself, "Oh shit, I'm recording at home. Like it, <laughs> it doesn't matter if she does dishes because it's all part of the, it's all it's part, part of, of my vibe. experience." And that yeah. was Maybell, and I thought, and Maybell was going to be the name of our daughter that was coming.
the baby is born a week after this record, okay? And the baby comes out and she, our daughter, has a penis. And we realized that <laughs> the ultrasound didn't really tell us the real picture here. So Maybell was Calhoun, which is my son's name. So okay. Maybell was now gave birth. We didn't know, you know, you have children, you know what I mean? But we didn't know if we had any more kids. So Maybell yeah. became the name of the record. And, and so that record was completely constructed like, like I was telling you about, almost like Johnny Gold, the same thing in that I had an idea and I had the yeah. songs, thank God. Yeah. And then from there, Steve was just kind of putting the... Um, just putting the pieces together. One's low, one should be high, one's in the middle. You know, it's, it's like that. Yeah, I get it. Okay, so there is a thing, though, on that record. And so from what you're telling me, it sounds like it was sheer accident because you said you had no idea how to record or how to do any of that. No but there idea. Is a, there is a like a, a roomy kind of sound on that, that album that it, to me is like remarkable. I think it's one of the coolest sounding records ever. Oh, honestly. thank you. <laughs> I got lucky. I'll be honest with you. I just got lucky. I got I got lucky because I didn't know I didn't know about compression. I didn't know. I look at I would and it had the the preamp, which I don't even remember what it was. Now it had yeah. a VU meter, and I uh -huh. think it was T TL. Does that make sound uh -huh. better? TL. Maybe and it was like T E A L, maybe yeah. TL electronics, yeah. And I would just watch the meter. Like when I when I record, you know, you know, I just kind of watch the meter a bit, then close my eyes and and then watch it and go, okay, that we're in the right, we're in the right ballpark. I didn't okay. know anything. Like I had no idea about, and the fact that it's very nice of you to say that. I just really got lucky with that because it could have been a disaster. Like I, <laughs> I, I knew that if you get something that sounded like hair on it, supposedly uh -huh. that was called distortion, digital distortion. Uh -huh. So I was always listening. Is it distorting? Is it? And those instruments seem to. They just seem to mix each other. They just, they all were from the same era. Like, they're all yeah. from the turn of the century. Like, the mandolin, okay. the mandolin, the mandolin. And they all were made to work together because that's, the Gibson Company made Sets, those instruments right. to be played in an orchestra. Had you listened to much of those mandolin orchestra recordings? Like, was that an inspiration or were you just coming at it from, from a strictly... It was a huge... It was a huge inspiration because oh, okay. not not only did I love every every city had a mandolin orchestra, yeah. and and there were string players who just played they played um, mandolin because they're in the range and they can and they just they just did arrangements they just did classical tunes or they did folk tunes of the day, but I loved the sound of them like I just thought and I loved the idea yeah. that these instruments were made for. Um, they were made for, uh, for community.
you know, your friend had a mandola, and then there was a mando bass. Like I just thought that was a great era in um, in the guitar manufacturing, you know, ma instrument manufacturing, because it was made to be played. I don't know any other. I can't think of any other instrument that's made like that. I guess I guess woodwinds are, and I guess brass instruments are made to be played in an orchestra. So yeah. you have. So I think that the mandolins. I just really I loved it so much just the thought that they got along and I think maybe with you know the, the Maybell mm -hmm. they just they just knew what to do like you, when you put up the fader they already they're pre-EQ'd you know <laughs> they're, they're pre they're, they come EQ'd you know yeah, it's yeah. like they that, that's just the nature of where they sit in the orchestra so you don't really have to say well and if you have and I think that I without knowing it and believe me, I really, I mean it without knowing it. There is a little bit of, uh, you have an idea of, of uh, EQs in your brain already. Like you, you can hear uh -huh. it in the microphone, you know, so, back up. The microphone's too much in the sound hole, so you're getting a lot of honk. So you, you just have a natural ability to, you know, when you're, when you're playing dobro, you kind of know, you say, well, if I just shift over an inch, right. it's going gonna, it's gonna to work better in the track. No, no engineer has to come out and tell you that. You know that right. already. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's what was going on with me for Maybell, but I believe me, there's no ego there with uh, the way that record sounds because it was I was just really lucky. <laughs> um, are there recordings of mandolin orchestras that that are uh, particularly inspirational to you, or that you remember hearing? Well, yeah, like there's there's well there's a lot there's a lot of stuff Smithsonian stuff that's pretty amazing um, mm -hmm. that I really liked. There was one there's a like every like I said a lot of. Um, cities had um, orchestras like San Francisco, Portland. And they have these. They're harder to find, but they, they're they're pretty interesting. And there's and there's mm -hmm. also like Mike. What's his name? Um, da, 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 Mike Marshall has the Gur. Do you know Gur? No. Yeah, his the Gur extra, which is uh, it's all you know music, uh, uh, Jewish uh, uh, folk songs, and it's with the Gur extra, which is all mandolins. Oh, and cool, he's, okay. been, he's been doing that for some time. So he, that stuff is astounding. Then there's uh -huh. a, then where you are now, the Nashville Mandolin Orchestra. I don't know if you've checked yeah. that out. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, that, like, that's really that that those records sound beautiful. I wasn't crazy about the repertoire, but it's because it, somehow there's a little bit of campiness with it. Right. Like a, a lot of people don't they don't know the difference uh, between really a ukulele and a mandolin. You know, it's, right. <laughs> they, they, they go, is that a ukulele? I get that all the time. And I uh -huh. say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it's also called a mandolin. Uh, but they go, oh, okay. You know. When I play the Weisenborn, people always think that it's a dulcimer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. I, I love it. And what are you going to do? Because you, you, you can say, there's a guy who used to tune my piano, right? And, and he, he loved tuning, uh, he loved these Canadian piano companies called Heinzmann, okay? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I know you know that. And uh, 
he said, I asked him about Heinzman. I asked him about, because he loves Heinzman. I said, what is it about Heinzman you like? And he said to me, the best answer I ever heard. He says, do you want the five-minute answer or the 20-minute answer? (laughs) So I go, and you have to say, really, give me the five-minute. Because, you know, it's one of the things. So I feel that way with mandolin. Like, I feel like when people say, oh, that ukulele, I go, this could really get a conversation so I go uh-huh. yes you know <laughs> it is it, 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 it is that way it is exactly what you think it is it is that you know yeah. it, it, if you have to ask that question you know you're in That's you right. might be in a bit of an education you know and it's yeah. kind of not the most fun thing to talk about no it sometimes it's better just left uh, unsaid <laughs> yeah, um, exactly <laughs> that, so that actually what you said is interesting I think too because uh, what you said about like campiness uh, yeah. comes through in in these orchestras sometime, and I totally agree. And yeah. I think the I think the interesting thing though is that there's a lot of sense of humor on on that record, Maybell as well, and and in a lot of your music. But it's not campy. It's just like there's a right. sense of humor that comes through. That's just the way that you write music, I guess, right? Yeah, it, it, it is completely, and it's it's also what I'd like to hear. Like if I was going to pick up a, a record like like uh, you know a mandolin orchestra record or something something that's um, you know that has instruments you haven't heard, I I want to hear it in a way that uh, I, I'm not you know I, I would like to think that it's serious and yet it, yeah, it has its humor, but you know that's part of uh, I I just hear those things as as orchestra. Um, Orchestra instruments. I don't. I don't like when I when I arrange something for for a mandolin orchestra. I hear violins and cellos and violas. Like I, that's how I arrange it. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't arrange it like um, you know, blinkadinka, blinkadinka, blinkadinka. I I actually think of it in terms of like you're arranging for a big orchestra and, and some of field recording, which was came at least I think almost. Well, I know Ernesto and Delilah is, you know, it's a double disc of mandolin orchestra music. And that right. that record was almost 20 years after Maybell. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and I wasn't, I don't want to say restricted to more than eight tracks. Restricted is, you can do a lot with eight tracks. But with with that, I went crazy and I was doing 36, you know, an orchestra of 36 members. From the treasure chest, the smoke takes the words up west to the valley, west of the valley. And here's a picture when we were in school. The boy you loved, well, I loved him too. I'm sorry. Like, I, I arranged it seriously as I could. I was penciled the paper. I did it like it was an orchestration. I did it off a piano and I arranged because I wanted it to be like that. So I made the whole record uh, like that, that it would be, you know, orchestrated. And, and I, I, when, I hear, when I hear the mandolin, I, I think, oh, that's the, I, I would kind of, in my mind, refer to it as the first violin part, the second violin part. That's how I heard it. Um, and it, and it, it, it just it really it was, it was a real good education for me because I, I I didn't um, I I really didn't do very much of that before and I thought well 
I can make this. I can do anything I want to do. Here's the, here's what the song is. Here's here's the, here's the chord chart for it. Now, how do I arrange it? You know, and I and I again, almost like Johnny Goldtooth. I I took a I created an orchestra that didn't exist. I worked on that orchestra for before I even recorded a note for six months, giving it a a presence where I made up the name of the orchestra. Mm -hmm. I called the Upper York mm -hmm. Mandolin Orchestra and I right, I yeah. gave it th 300 members. I, I had, and on the road <laughs> with Hugh Laurie, every day I would come up with 10 fictitious names and I put it into the list of people who were... And I... But this is before I recorded a note and I, and I made it a husband-wife team who played mandola and played mandolin and then I made this guy who's insane who's going to be the leader, you know, uh, and... Uh, Tom Dooley, you know, and he was third uh -huh. generation Dooley's and he was a, <laughs> and I, I wanted him to basically, to be honest, ruin my songs. I wanted him to, I would take these simple songs and he would arrange it to death and he would, uh, any, even if there was one, see if there was two beats, he'd fill it up with a 30 second note flourish and it would be it would be written for 10 mandolins doing it <laughs> you know, and, I, and i think what would what would i do you know, and i said i well, i just always be rolling my eyes at what this guy was arranging so it kind of gave me room to be really clever uh -huh. without so i just thought well i'll arrange the shit out of this stuff <laughs> with somebody else doing the arrangements and it, right. and it, and it, it sounds kind of weird but it was pretty inspirational to be able to write that way kind because of it, it, it wasn't me That's like a recurring theme, it seems, with you a little bit. Yeah. So I'd like to talk to you about your guitar playing specifically, but maybe tell me a bit about um, Empty and the process of recording that, because that, much like Maybell, mm. that one for me was a, you know, that I think I, I first met you and you handed me a copy of, of Empty, maybe even those two records. And mm. um, I, I just remember, like, at the time, for me, like, there wasn't a lot of slide guitar records that I was super interested in. Like I was, I'd yeah. already kind of like explored all the things that I wanted to explore, but that one like really jumped out to me. The tone is amazing. The songs oh. are killer. The playing is killer. Uh, tell me a bit about the process for that. Well, um, Maybell was made, Maybell was made in July mm -hmm. at my house. And the month before empty was made in my oh, wow. house. Okay. So that was made in June. Uh, so I, again, like I really took, I really, really, really listened to my ill-informed friends who were saying <laughs> that my life was over once I had kids. So, so I, I wrote for that year, which was in 98, 1998, yeah. I wrote a record a month. Wow. Uh, I was on the road with Katie Lang. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was writing all the time because I was I I felt like I got to write two years of material because my my kids are going to my make life my life over. a living hell, uh, which. <laughs> 
which is true in a way. No, it wasn't true at all. <laughs> but so, so that record was made pretty similar to um, wow, okay. to Empty because I didn't know anything, and uh, it was it was recorded. Some of it was recorded. A lot of it was recorded. Uh, like you hear it, it was done yeah. live. Jorn Anderson, he played drums. Okay, yeah, and and I did. I was really into, uh, always into slide guitar. I loved slide guitar, and I loved, I loved that national so much. Like I loved the way it sounded, and I just thought it would be a really, it'd be nice just to make a record of just all that, like just that one guitar, and uh, and guitar organ. I had the guitar organ behind it, which was really unusual. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, like uh, I forgot about that thing actually. But then that—that would be. How, you know, I imagine, imagine a Katorgan with a national. That's some kind of neat. And then, mm-hmm. um, and a friend of, at, at, around that time, my father passed away, and a friend of mine got—he got one of these. You know those keychains you get where you can press and record it. You know, there's like yeah. a little toy. Right, it's like a little looper almost. Well, this is like '97, and he gets his thing, he buys it, he lives in New York, and he has, he's into shortwave radio, and he, he turns on his stage, and he just pressed record, and he hit a Southern Baptist African-American minister saying this beautiful thing about, um, your mother could have died, your father could have died, you could be orphaned, but you are somebody's child. And if you ever lose a parent, you feel orphaned. Like, there's something weird about that, but you feel... You know, you just feel orphaned. You, you, there's something about losing something that's close to you. And that's the way I actually felt. And, and when he, so he, he's such a good friend, he sent the keychain in the mail in a padded envelope and over the record button, he said, do not press. Press wow. play. So I got it and I pressed play and I just completely, that's exactly, I, I lost it. Like I, and I thought, this is going to be empty because I felt empty, you know, and I felt, and I felt like an orphan. And that recording just completely, creatively put me in a great. It was actually great. It, it wasn't horrible. It was great. Put me in a really great place of reflection. something really tender 
about it yet. Just something, you know, it covers a lot of things, the sound of that instrument. Anything, I don't know why. I mean, mine really, uh, I really felt uh, that it, it could really sing something and say something. Uh-huh. And, I, and I, so that record was really a, a fun record to make. My wife wasn't as pregnant, uh, so she wasn't doing <laughs> She was more forgiving. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I did that thing with the rented eight-track recorder. Nice. And and the national that you're playing on that is it like a like a style O or something? It doesn't sound like a tricone. No, you're right. It's a style O. Uh-huh. I've I've had it since I was 14, um, cool. and it's uh, it's exactly exactly. It looks exactly like the business funny what I'm about to say. It's exactly the same as Mark Knopfler's. Oh, really? <laughs> you know the one on the cover of, of, of uh, what's it called? Brothers uh, in Arms? Brothers in Arms, yeah. yeah. Remember, remember the cover? And it has <laughs> it's like six degrees of separation, six degrees of Mark Knopfler. But uh, it's the same one with the, with the pick guard. You know, it's, uh, okay. a, it's yeah. the one they made that had a pick guard. That's okay. one I have, and it was a fourteen okay. fret. I have, yeah. I still have it. The fourteen fret, and I had work done to it, and it kind of lost a bit of its mojo. It's kind of funny. I don't know why, but it, hmm. I got to revisit it and get it. Mm-hmm. I think there's something think with so. the cone or something, but it doesn't resonate as much as it. You know, you walk by and you talk, you hear it resonating. You know, I had that really beautiful. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's how that record was made, Steve. That, folks, is going to be the end of part one of my conversation with Kevin Bright as the sounds of empty waft off into the sunset. We'll be back one week from today. I will be releasing part two of this interview. Make sure you come back and check out the rest. And then three weeks after that, we'll be back on the monthly schedule. Thanks for listening. See you next week for part two of Kevin Bright. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers